Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. The Bighorn Fire has been burning for three weeks in the Catalina Mountains north of Tucson. This week we get an update on that fire and how fires affect the wildlife and ecology of the area. The Bighorn Fire began on the night of June 5th. Molly Hunter, the public information officer on the fire, says it's been a tough fire to fight because of the rocky terrain and proximity to houses on the edge of town. The last team that was assigned to the fire, they estimated that there were um, 81 miles of urban interface that at one point or another was threatened by the fire, which is um, which is a pretty big number and, and a testament to how complex this system really is. And on top of that, um, as you mentioned, the terrain is very complex. It's difficult to get firefighters back into some of these areas um, and difficult for them to um, be in some of those areas and still be able to engage a fire safely. And that's one of our big concerns. That's why things like aircraft have been really particularly important for this fire. I know that the containment as we speak is about 33%, at least that's what I saw. At one point it was as high as 40 and then it dropped back down. Is that a result of just the the terrain um, and the fire running in areas that is just unsafe for crews to be in? So that containment figure is kind of tricky and it's um, normal for big fires like this for it to fluctuate and go up and down. And what it is, it's a measure of the perimeter of the fire that um, the amount of perimeter that crews feel comfortable as sort of safe, where they feel like fire isn't going to pass anymore. Um, And all the containment lines that have been um, sort of uh, estimated to date have held. So there's containment lying along the western and southern part of the fire um, and even now on parts of the eastern flank of the fire. But what has happened as the, is the fire has grown, you know, so as the fire grows, the percentage of containment, which is really just, it's just a mathematical equation, that can fluctuate. One of the things we've heard about, and, and I've talked with some of the, the, the fire um, crews uh, about that I've run into out in the community is you all using drones, especially at night, to watch the fire and see where it's going. That's something I really haven't heard much about before. Is this a relatively new practice? It is. And actually, you'd be amazed at the kind of technology that firefighters are using now. Um, so the drones fly every night there, and they have infrared sensors on them. So they're able to map all of the, the um, hot spots on the fire. And in fact, um, on some of the drones, the pilots are actually using Zoom to show the drone footage that they're seeing to the people that are on the ground. So they, they're able to use that intelligence in real time, which is really amazing. What are the impacts of fires like the Bighorn down the road, especially because monsoons are coming soon? Will ash and sediment be an issue uh, as the rains hopefully hit the mountains soon? Yeah, so we'll probably get a better assessment of that once um and, and this is probably a great question for the Coronado National Forest. They order in what's called a, we call a, a bear team, burned area emergency rehabilitation. And they're assessing, their job is to assess exactly those types of things. And so, um, and they start very soon, even before the fire is out, they start out there assessing um, those kinds of risks. 
it's not often, at least here in southern Arizona, that we get to see a fire this close to a major metro area like Tucson. And some people might be surprised by the fact that it's still burning three weeks later. Is this typical? Yeah, so this is a large mountain range. There's lots of fuel available to burn. The conditions are very, very dry, um, very, very hot. Um, and while firefighters can, uh, you know, what they do is they're sort of checking the spread of the fire. They're working to keep it out of areas that are sensitive, um, and and but they don't really put out fires. Really, it's rain that that puts out a fire. So until we get a significant amount of moisture, there's still potential for the fire to spread into areas it hasn't yet burned. When we talk about managing fires, I think people might have been surprised to learn that there is a lot of management that goes into not just for the protecting, uh, in this case, uh, of communities and homes, but also trying to steer it uh, around uh, different places. Again, I imagine that was much more difficult on this fire just because of the, the rocky terrain. Yeah, and an example of that, one one strategy that they take is called burnout operations, and that's when they actually light fires under conditions that are really optimal for them, that where they can control fire behavior. Sometimes this is done via helicopter. So a helicopter will kind of drop what we call ping pong balls. They, they, these little things, they look like ping pong balls, but they, once they hit the ground, they ignite. And they do that often at night when it's uh, cooler, the relatively relative humidity is higher. And that means that fire that they light is going to is going to burn with low intensity. Um, and they do that intentionally because it creates kind of a, a buffer, a large buffer area between um, the main wildfire and any values that might be at risk. What have we missed when it comes to the Bighorn Fire that, that our listeners uh, should know, both good or bad, uh, about a fire like this? Well, um, I think Tucson and other communities around the area are really witnessing one of these elite firefighting teams, a type one incident management team, this is really the best of the best. Um, they are uh, trained to handle these really complex incidents. And I think you could see uh, the success of those, those efforts, that kind of the people with that kind of training and that kind of experience, uh, what they bring to, um, to an incident like this. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. My pleasure. That was Molly Hunter, the public information officer on the Bighorn Fire in the Catalina Mountains. Unfortunately, the Bighorn is not the only large fire burning in Arizona right now, and a lot of fires occur on public lands. We talked about this year's fire season with Kelly Castillo, the state fire management officer with the Federal Bureau of Land Management. Castillo says the wet winter and spring set up conditions for lots of grass and non-native species that burn easily. So for most of the BLM districts, which are mostly in that lower elevation, uh, you know, we have four districts uh, for BLM in Arizona. All of our districts are reporting significant grass growth uh, this winter and spring. And so there's a lot of fine fuels, as we call it, fine fuels being grass. So, you know, there's significant fine fuels all the way across the Sonoran Desert. So they have an experience from, from some of the folks that have been around for a while, some of our districts, they hadn't seen the grass crop or grass growth like this uh, since 2005, 2006, which was our last significant year uh, fire season we had in the desert country. 
looking at the current fires, how many of them are natural? Bighorn was caused by lightning versus human caused. Uh, Bush, I understand, was human caused. So how is it breaking down this year? You know, I would say I think our numbers that we just ran uh, for the year, and this is to, this is coming from January 1 to present day. I think we're averaging about 85% of our fires are still human caused. What we've been seeing that hasn't helped out our cause is the way the weather pattern set up, I would say last month. You know, we, we normally in the month of May into June uh, is more, more of our human caused fires. We don't see the monsoons and a lot of that dry lightning. Unfortunately, we had a kind of a different weather pattern where we were having these sporadic, you know, thunderstorms move through you know, dump a, not a lot of rain, but dump a lot of lightning. And then the IE, you had the sawtooth fire uh, that started earlier on the Tonneau. You got, yeah, then you have, of course, the, the, the Bighorn fire uh, as well. So those, those storms did not help. They didn't drop a lot of rain, uh, but they, they added to, I guess, our complexity of having to worry about the human cause starts in those months of May and June. The Bighorn and the Bush fires, two of the major fires uh, burning right now in Arizona. Last time I looked, about 1,500 personnel on those two fires combined. How are we doing on resources? We're actually at the point in the, in the southwest geographic area, which is Arizona, New Mexico, uh, where we've exhausted our local resources and we need to bring other resources in from up north and from other places. Uh, and so that's where we've kind of gone right now to, to support the Bighorn and the bushfire is a lot of times when it exceeds the capabilities of the local unit, uh, then we go to the geographic area and grab from, you know, crews from New Mexico or whatever else within our Southwest geographic area. Then once we've exhausted that, and then we have to place orders nationally up to the National Interagency Coordination Center, which then they order, they, they'll go ahead and place those orders to other geographic areas and they will help us out. So we've seen quite a bit of crews and engines uh, from a lot of states come in to support these other fires. Is that the same also with those big air tankers? We had the Tanker 10 crews down here on Bighorn for a while. Obviously, those are private companies that just contract, so they just move from fire to fire, I would assume. Yeah, it's through the coordination system. And so what essentially happens is uh, the Southwest, we do have the luxury, I'd say the luxury of being the first geographic area that has a fire season besides maybe the Southern area, which is, you know, the, the, the all those Southern states down there, Georgia and all the rest of them. Uh, but we, we definitely have the luxury of being the first one out of the hopper. So a lot of times those air tankers are staged here. Um, and of course, then we have the luxury of, of having those air tankers available for us while the other geographic areas up North, such as the great basin, the Pacific Northwest and Northern Rockies, they're not quite in fire season. They're not experiencing large fires. But then when we get into about the monsoons, that transition period I, I talked about where we start getting a little bit of lightning and stuff like that is about the same time that we have the northern geographic areas competing for resources as well. So uh, the coordination system, our dispatch system is, well, is very skookum and, and, a, and a very well-run machine to go ahead and share those resources. So right now you do see a kind of the lion's share of aviation here in air tankers. But that's not to say those air tankers won't go right now and fly a fire in Utah or somewhere else. It just depends on what the priorities are. We hear a lot about now fires are good. Uh, they're good for the environment. Is that true on the big fires we're seeing now? Are these good fires or 
Did these come up in places that maybe aren't so good? I, I would say it depend. It does depend on your ecosystem, of course. Uh, you know, I would say you know the Ponderosa Pine uh, country up north. Uh, there is, you know, under the right conditions, there is good fire. I mean, we do a lot of prescribed fire or control burns as they, as the layman term is. Uh, so we do a lot of that during the off season. Sonoran desert, not so much. That, that, that is not a fire dependent ecosystem. And so any kind of fire in the Sonoran desert, we want to try to avoid. Um, and so, but that's not to say up north around, you know, Flagstaff Williams or somewhere like that, where Maybe it's in the back country and there's no urban interface. There's no resources that, that you know, that are at threat. Uh, you know, you might be able to manage that fire uh, for the ecosystem benefit. When it comes to COVID and the fires we're dealing with now, does that have to be now factored in to the plan to attack a fire? You know, when COVID hit, uh, the fire community was definitely proactive we knew that we were going to have to figure out ways to mitigate uh, COVID while still fighting fire. We're still going to have to go out there and put out fires. So, you know, the, the interagency community has been great at communicating what each agency's plans have been and trying to combine those plans into an interagency fire plan, I guess you could say, for COVID. And so, uh, so when you have 1,500 people in a fire camp, how do you mitigate, you know, with social distancing? How, what can you do actually virtually that incident management teams have never, haven't done before? Uh, we have in the fire community had some, had some folks that have gotten sick and we've isolated them. But each, each agency and each local unit has their own plan of how they're going to deal with that. If one of their firefighters goes down, how are we going to isolate them? Uh, you know, how are we going to isolate the crew? Where, how long are we going to quarantine them based on CDC guidance? So, we're doing some good mitigation stuff, but uh, it's it's ever evolving. All right. Well, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Well, hopefully I wasn't too long-winded. <laughs> that was Kelly Castillo, Arizona Fire Management Officer for the Federal Bureau of Land Management. This week, we're discussing wildfire. For the last few weeks, Tucson residents have seen clouds of smoke hanging over the city and the Catalina Mountains where the Bighorn Fire is burning. As the buzzes Vanessa Ontiveros reports, when smoke is in the air, people should take caution. Wildfire smoke doesn't just look menacing. It can also be harmful to your health. Beth Gorman is the Senior Program Manager of the Pima County Department of Environmental Quality, which has been monitoring the effects of the Bighorn Fire on local air quality. Definitely, uh, there are days when the smoke is coming down into the valley and, and affecting a lot of people. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, smoke inhalation can result in coughing and wheezing, as well as irritated eyes, throat, and nose. Smoke inhalation can also cause headaches and asthma attacks. And the COVID-19 pandemic has only upped the risk for smoke-related health issues. The U.S. Forest Service reports people with COVID-19 are at an increased risk for adverse reactions to wildfire smoke. And exposure to smoke can make you more susceptible to COVID-19. The best way to minimize health impacts is to avoid exposure to smoke. Gorman says local air quality depends on many factors, including the weather and wind conditions. But there's a good rule of thumb you can follow. If you smell smoke, you're breathing it into your lungs, and that's what can cause the health effects. Pima County residents can also check local air quality online, which is updated every hour, 
though Gorman says the county only has about a dozen monitoring sites. We don't have the resources to locate air quality monitors in every neighborhood. You know, it may give you an idea if you happen to, to live near where one of the monitors are. The State Department of Environmental Quality recently launched a wildfire smoke forecast online. It's currently monitoring the Bighorn Fire north of Tucson and the Bush Fire in Maricopa County. Smoke forecasts are delivered for each major city in the affected area. These forecasts also keep track of the size of the fire, wind conditions, and recommendations for the level of safe outdoor activity. For people in smoke-heavy areas, the best move may be to just stay inside. Gorman says people should keep windows closed and limit the amount of outside air that comes into their homes. That means not turning on swamp coolers or indoor fans. But that can be difficult during hot summer months. For people without air conditioners, Gorman has a suggestion. You may want to just go somewhere temporarily to a friend's house or a family member or, you know, or, or relocate temporarily to a place that's not as smoky. People indoors should also avoid lighting candles and smoking cigarettes and vacuuming, which can stir up small particles that have settled on carpets, Gorman says. Even if you can't see smoke, the air still may not be clear. Some of these very small particles can stay elevated in the air for a long period of time. So, you know, it could be days afterwards that there might still be a residue of smoke. For now, we can cross our fingers and hope for clearer skies soon. For The Buzz, I'm Vanessa Ontiveros. Fire, while potentially damaging to homes and air quality, is part of the natural environment. Bob Steidel is a professor of wildlife ecology at the University of Arizona. He says the impacts of the fire will differ depending on where it's burning. In our region, if we think about the mid-elevation grasslands, that's a plant community that burns regularly. Every seven to ten years or so we think is the natural return interval for fires in that sort of environment. Whereas in the forest, it's less frequent than that, but we still anticipate that to be a fire-governed system. What is new here, of course, is the um, fire starting down below. The Sonoran Desert, this sort of typical uh, vegetation we think of when we think of the Sonoran Desert, you know, saguaros and palo verdes and ironwoods, um, that plant community almost never burned. There's a few Examples of it maybe burning in the past and for small areas, but those are rare exceptions, maybe after terrific winter rains and good annual plant growth. But for the most part, the lower vegetation community really never burns. So that's what's novel about this fire is that uh, that plant community has changed into a way now that um, with the invasion of buffalo grass that it can uh, bring fires of fairly high intensity fairly regularly that are novel to that plant community and to all the organisms that inhabit that place. So many things to chat about in that answer, but let's start with one of the last things you mentioned, buffalo grass. We hear a lot about it. Is that the only invasive species in the area that we're talking about that's causing problems? And does it have a particular role in this fire? Well, so the specifics of that, you're probably better off talking to a plant community ecologist. I'm really a wildlife guy, but I, I think a lot about habitat conditions because that's what's important to animals. So I know for a fact that there are other plants that, are, um, that have invaded the Sonoran Desert, but probably none is as consequential as buffalo grass. You know, the native 
Sonoran Desert has grasses in it, um, but they tend to be fairly sparsely distributed. They tend to not form strong monocultures, where buffalo grass is the opposite. It can form really high dense patches, and over time, the plants can accumulate and form really large interconnected fuels um, that that the organisms in the Sonoran Desert environment have never really had a chance to evolve in response to. So if you think about saguaros, they don't have any adaptations to deal with fire like lots of other uh, plants might have in uh, fire-dominated ecosystems. What about the animals? This is called the bighorn fire, and we think uh, of the uh, the bighorn sheep in that area. How do the animals, especially those that live down low where this fire started and has spent a lot of time, handle a fire like this? You know, there are so many different species, right? And their responses, their potential responses to fire likely reflect some about how they live their lives um, and, and what potential behaviors and other activities that they that sort of come along with who they are. So if we think about something like birds and the immediate response to fire, there's a fair chance that for birds that are on the wing and, and can move great distances, that they can probably avoid the immediate mortality event unless a fire rushes them and catches them by surprise. Whereas other organisms but who might not be so mobile have a different set of challenges you know, I think it's easy to think about fire coming in and just rolling them over things like small mammals or snakes and things like that. And there certainly will be some mortality. But one thing to keep in mind is that in June in the Sonoran Desert, so many of our animals spend a bunch of their time underground. You know, that's where sort of luck plays a role. If they if their particular area gets burned during the day and they happen to be underground, my guess is they're going to be able to survive that immediate event. Um, so what, they won't know until they come out later and they look around and their world is sort of gone. And that's what sort of leads to that second time scale of interest is that most of us, especially with the fire ongoing now, think about that immediately response to fire. Um, but there's also that long-term consequence. And after a fire moves through, we have to ask ourselves, does it still provide what those species need to persist? And most fires, not all of them, but most of them are at least patchy enough in nature that if they're lucky, then they've got some of the resources they need nearby, although certainly not all of them will. Is that true also up high in the sky islands that are more accustomed to burn and at least from plant uh, end of it often need a burn? Well, sure. And I think that is true. And, and it, you know, fires are a fundamental process in a lot of vegetated ecosystems, at least in the temperate zone where we live. It is, again, the, the question is mostly this question of return interval and frequency. So if we imagine Ponderosa Pines up north, is they that's an ecosystem that has, you know, thought to have frequent light fires that really causes very little tree mortality. Um, but the fires, some of the fires we've had here, and I'm not sure what it will look like when it's done on the Bighorn Fire. Um, but we see higher mortality now than we probably have in the past. Um, the you know, fuels have built up and understandably people have suppressed those for a long time and that was the way that we used to handle wildfire. Um, it's nice now that I think there has been a change in the philosophy for firefighters and fire managers and that when they have the potential to let a fire burn, um, they do. And I think in the long run, that's a really positive change. 
Are we seeing more fires due to climate change? Uh, I've heard some of the fire managers for this particular fire say this was a bit of a surprise because we don't tend to get lightning storms in, in the first week of June, but that's what happened and that's what caused this one. The, the question of the impacts of climate change on the, uh, the fire regime in our region is really a big question. I, I think few people would argue that we are not in for more frequent fires, fires of higher intensity. You know, when most of us think of climate change, the first thing we think of is temperature, but there's also a precipitation effect as well. So what is important for a lot of the organisms here, both plants and lots of our animals, are uh, sort of drought periods. How long do we go without rain and significant rain? And one of the things that climate change experts predict is longer, more intensive droughts. If that comes true, and it seems likely that's, that's already starting to happen already, then we can expect fires to be more frequent and probably of higher severity. Can fires like the Bighorn Fire help us with management of invasive species because it does change the habitat? Or do those invasives come back more quickly, like buffalo grass or, or maybe invasive species within the animal uh, realm come back more quickly in a fire than the natives do? You know, so, so most of the species that are able to get a foothold in these places like buffalo grass and some other, and pick a plant community these days, it's got some non-native plants and animals in it now, um, is that they, um, they almost always come uh, equipped with adaptations to deal with fire. You know, one of the species that I've worked on in the grasslands are is layman love grass. It's another grass that sort of works like buffalo. It forms monocultures, high biomass in our native grasses. And if you look at the history of where that species is, where when where it came from, it's from a fire-prone system in Africa. So the only species that are going to be able to make it here, make it in our set of conditions, and if fire is one of those sets of conditions, then it probably has the ability to deal with it. And we know that fires, if they're strong enough, can sort of set buffalo grass back a little bit. But for the most part, um, fires are not complete, right? There's always patches that persist. And it just takes, you know, a small patches here and there for and a few seasons of rains and buffalo grass will be back um, spread throughout that fire zone. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Well, my pleasure. That was Bob Steidel, a professor of wildlife ecology at the University of Arizona. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.